I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How you doing, podcasts? Adam Buxton here. Weather check. Depressing, rainy, grey, cold. Anyway, welcome to podcast number 70, which features a conversation with British director and friend of the podcast, Garth Jennings. Hey, welcome back, Garth. And Garth's Texan friend, director Wes Anderson. As you'll hear, Garth and Wes both spend much of their time living and working in Paris. So a few weeks ago, with Wes's new film, Isle of Dogs, about to be released, I managed to wangle myself a Eurostar ticket, and I paid them both a visit. We got a screening of the film, me and Garth, the night that I arrived in Paris, and then we went and met Wes the following afternoon at his offices, a short cycle ride from where Garth lives. So the Isle of Dogs, set in a dystopian near-future Japan, Isle of Dogs follows a young boy who goes in search of his dog after the whole species is banished to an island by Mayor Kobayashi due to an illness outbreak. That's the synopsis. You're welcome. Story and screenplay by Wes Anderson, along with his regular collaborators Roman Coppola, Jason Schwartzman, and Japanese actor and writer Kunichi Nomura, who has worked with Wes before on a couple of things. I think Grand Budapest Hotel he may have been in. Anyway, Kunichi also provided the voice of the film's villainous Mayor Kobayashi, and he was also tasked with ensuring the accuracy of any elements in the film relating to Japanese culture. Speaking to the Deadline Hollywood website... Kunichi said, Wes had a clear idea of what he wanted to do. I helped make it authentic while keeping his vision. Now, I mention that because there's been a certain amount of grumbling in some quarters about the the tone of the film, culturally speaking. Many of the Japanese references in Isle of Dogs certainly are on the obvious side, uh, and they are painted in broad strokes. I thought they were lovingly and often beautifully painted. But some people have expressed concern that it's a white Western take on Japanese culture, which is reductive and insensitive. Personally, I didn't find it any more insensitive than a show like Samurai Jack, which was terrific, I thought, or films like Kung Fu Panda and Kubo and the Two Strings. What do you think, Rosie? I found it highly offensive, and I was angered by the lack of representation of female dogs. What, you wanted Mo Bitches? Yeah, that's right. The only one in there was a really girly dog with a bow and Scarlett Johansson's voice. When everyone knows that real woman dogs like to harass deer and speak with the voice of Adam Buxton. Yeah, exactly. Now, Rosie, you haven't actually seen Isle of Dogs yet, have you? No, I'm a dog. Plus, I don't really like Wes Anderson because I think his films are too quirky and annoying. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I'd advise you to give it a watch. I actually thought it was less quirky than some of his other films. I'm doing a poo. 
Okay, I'll leave you to it. Now, my meeting with Wes took place before anyone had started mentioning cultural appropriation in connection with the film, so I didn't ask Wes about it. Instead, the three of us, myself, Wes and Garth, enjoyed a rambly chat about the production of Isle of Dogs and stop motion in general, David Bowie, of course, Mary Poppins, obviously, cantankerous cast members and other important odds and sods. But before we went to meet Wes, I got a chance to catch up briefly with Garth. Back at the end of the podcast for more waffles. But right now, here we go. Set the scene for us, Garth. Right, we're in my flat in Paris. I've been here for five years and that still sounds nice to say that. Yeah. Sounds glamorous. We're sitting in the living room. What's your arrondissement? We're in the seventh because uh, for two reasons, school and work. The children, our four sons, go to bilingual schools in this neighbourhood. And uh, that's where the main ones were. It's the only place we could get them in. And also, it was within walking distance of the studios where I am making Sing Two at the moment. And they're that's a ten minute walk away from here. Yeah. So is that a, a French branch of Illuminations Studios? Is yeah, it? Yeah, it's Illumination McGuff because Illumination. McGuff was a, 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 an animation studio and an effects studio for back in the nineties, and they'd been going for years. And they created an alliance with Illumination, so all of the movies are made here in Paris. All the animators, all the everything is made Despicable here. Despicable me. All of it is done here. There's 900 people at the studios now. 900? Yeah, man. It's huge. Whoa. And there's usually, right now, there are four films in production at various stages. So one is nearly done. One is halfway. One's just beginning. And then there's mine, which yeah. is sort of... Uh, when are you up. slated for slated release? Slated for Christmas Day 2020. Christmas Day 2020. Yeah, so I'll be wrapping up in about two years from today. Right. About two years from today, we'll be sort of bringing it to a close. And then we'll, over the summer, it will be mixed. That's what Donald Trump's been saying. Really? <laughs> two years today, we're going to bring it to a close. Yeah. We're going to blow it all up. <laughs> That's what he's chatting with uh, Kim Jong-un about. Yeah, what do you reckon? Two years? He just wants to get a few more rounds of golf in. So you've got, to, oh, you've got to creep in there before uh, the before, apocalypse. Before the apocalypse. I figured that Sing 2's got to be, your, if it's the last thing you see, <laughs> uh, it's got to be the best I can do. And it's actually, it's funny because it probably, it's more than likely going to be the last animated film I get to do because um, I, I don't know what I'll be able to do afterwards. I genuinely don't know what I'm really? doing afterwards. So I'm going at this like, right, I've got to make this like the last thing I'll ever get to do. Yeah. So I came over yesterday on yeah. the Eurostar. Was it smooth? It was very nice. When it works, it's brilliant, isn't yeah. it? The um, film company sorted me out a ticket and uh, got a nice little seat to myself. That's the dream. No one got on at Ashford in the seat opposite me, so I was... Oh, you were in a single opposite someone else's seat? Yeah. Oh, and then you got the seat. And then I got... I didn't Sweet. have to stare at any other people. No, that's not nice. So I hate 
people. I hate people yeah. too. Awful. Yeah. Even um, this is hard. Isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's snuffles is Fargo the dog. Fargo. Fargo's a rescue dog. Had you met him before? I can't remember. I don't know if I have met Fargo. Fargo is actually from Spain. He was in a rescue home that was overflowing and he was on the death list, as in they were just going to start putting the dogs down. And there's a rescue team here in France that sort of rescue dogs that are on death row, as it were. Yeah. And one of the volunteers works at the studios, animation studios. Was and I and the kids were all talking about getting a dog. And then on the Monday, I went to work and there was a poster about to go up for this for who would like to adopt this dog. And just before it went up, I saw it in the office. I was like, "Oh, that's our dog." And uh, and he came home to sort of check it out for four days, see if he liked it. And he's never left. That was two and a half years ago. He's- he used to be called Franco, apparently, but the. The lady at the office changed it to Fargo for two reasons. She wasn't having Franco. Bit too fascist. Bit too fascist. And also, she's a movie buff. He and she, both, there's a couple there. And they're both huge movie buffs. So that's why he's called Fargo. Yeah. And he's great. He comes to work with me every day. In fact, you just missed us cycling down the street. He sits in my basket. (laughs) Like E.T. Yeah, he's like E.T. And he makes the same noises. Like Ah, E.T., you know, towards the end when he's in the river dying. Yeah. He makes, yeah, Fargo makes those noises. You'll hear some of them in a minute. <laughs> He's a French, what is he? French bulldog. French bulldog. Yeah, yeah. He's a lovely chap. Yeah. So, yes, I had a lovely journey over and then I stayed here last night after we went to the screening of Isle of Dogs, which we're going to talk about yeah. with Wes. Yeah. In the bathroom of the room where I was staying, there was a copy of The World as I See It by Albert Einstein. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was from my friend's mum's house when she died everyone said come over you're welcome to take anything you want that you know that you would like and I took a couple of her old books and her teacups that we used to drink tea out of all the time yeah and uh, that's why Albert Einstein came along yeah it's a good one yeah have you read it yeah no years ago though yeah so don't get me sure sure it's interesting it's good published in 1949 Various yeah. essays, thoughts, interviews, and pronouncements from the father of modern physics. Yeah. For example, I do not like it when people say, instead of holidays with my family, hollybobs with my family. <laughs> Hashtag so cringy. <laughs> that's, that's in chapter one. <laughs> chapter one, which is things that really wind me up. Yeah. Basically, Einstein is sounding off about... They filtered out all the stuff that's impossible to understand yes. what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like, here's a maths equation. Yeah. They've just reduced it to like, um, yeah, you know, here's my favourite recipe for hobnobs. Here's my risotto. Yeah. Exactly. Can't go wrong with these eggs. Recipe yeah. for hobnobs. Um, <laughs> it says, the fairest thing we can experience is the mysterious... It is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. He who knows it not and can no longer wonder, no longer feel amazement, is as good as dead, a snuffed-out candle. Wow, that's interesting. That's really right alongside the Alan Watts view of the world, isn't it? The sort of being in the moment, the accepting, being not his, knowing. Trying to promote a state of wonder. Yeah, but also not feeling like you've got to... Cont- it's funny, for someone who did chase an answer... Yeah. Uh, ...to sort of still feel one uh, a sense of wonder about it all. And you can't help but think, well, you probably needed that sort of... Curiosity, at least, yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, just to get you there. 
I mean, there was a lovely film, it was really enjoyable, called Hidden Figures. Did you watch it? Oh, yeah, yeah. And really, it was sort of saying very explicitly, oh, you're all very clever in this room, but what we need is someone who's just going to think outside of the box, mm. just, just, just prepared to just float away with it all. A bit of blue sky thinking. Yeah, mm. I hate that phrase so much. And it's, but it's so true. I, it's always annoying when you realise something that really works has been already given a label and right. is one that I hate. Everything gets given labels it's pretty like fast. So many things that if I... If one more person says to me to think outside the box... <laughs> that's in chapter three. <laughs> I'm going to fucking puke. Yes, I put them in the box and leave them to die. <laughs> I've come up with the fucking best equation of all time, so fuck you and your box. <laughs> Actually, maybe it's not the best equation of all time if it's going to lead to uh, the apocalypse. Yeah, it's true. But anyway. Um, So Einstein, though, but yeah, the mysterious. And that's good, isn't it? Because it's a sort of banal thing to say, I suppose. But of course, that's at the root of so much of what drives art and popular culture and all sorts of things is it's as simple as what's in the box a lot of the time. Yes. It's that thing of what's behind the curtain, what's in the box, what's behind the velvet rope, you know, just wanting to explore these places that you're not allowed to go or it's impossible to get to. Or Yeah. Well, that's the sort of J.J. Abrams yeah. formula, isn't it? Is, is the, like, the lost thing, which is that the, the, you never actually find out. No. <laughs> you're c- constantly guessing. And it goes through so many things, doesn't it? I suppose... Certainly, the, I'm thinking in terms of film, like The Shark, if you'd have seen The Shark all the way through Jaws, you would not have enjoyed Jaws. But the fact that you were always thinking, oh, where is it? Or oh, it's just some barrels. Yeah. You know, being towed along and your brain starts sort of filling in the gaps. I think when you're left a gap and you're comfortable in that gap mm. and then you're participating, that's good, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I don't know how you... I don't know... How it works with someone like a David Hockney, where there it is, there's the painting, it's just, it is what it is. I should have thought this through before I started talking about it, because now I'm going to come unstuck. I haven't thought about it either. (laughs) So, (laughs) it was mainly an excuse to um, pretend to be Einstein and say, Holly Bob's with my family. How are we doing for time? I don't know. Okay, no, it's it's 10 to 2. That's okay. We're going to leave... go about 2 o'clock. All right, we're going to leave here at 2 o'clock. Yeah. We're going to cycle over to Wes's offices. He's based in Paris. Yeah, he's just down the road from here. Wes and I, I think I must have met him in 2005 because we just that second finished The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and there was an actress in it called Zoe Deschanel who was fantastic and at the time she was dating... Uh, an actor called uh, Jason Schwartzman, who'd been in one of, or has been in a few of Wes's films now. Um, he, but the one I'd seen him in was Rushmore. Which was which, his first film. Yeah, which I've got to say, when that came out... Schwartzman's first film, that is, not Wes's. Right, yeah. Schwartzman's first film, Wes's second feature film. I remember seeing that film in uh, Rushmore and I, I think I went back the next day to see it again and I, was, I loved it so much, I was almost angry. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Where you're like... Oh, it's just like, how are you going to, how am I supposed to, what's the point? Yeah. And so, but you asked me when I met him and it was in 2005, we'd finished Hitchhikers, Jason Schwartzman got in touch because I'd gone to Paris for a few days. In fact, my wife had sent me there, was sort of said, go away for a couple of days because you've just finished. It was all the press and everything had been done. And I'd never done anything like that before. And it does, it's such a whiny thing to say, but it does actually 
play with your brain yeah. in a way that's not healthy. And um, we just had a baby. We just moved in. And, and she said, why don't you just go away for a few days uh, to Nigel's place? Our mate Nigel's got his little flat in the middle of Paris and just go and be away from everyone. So I went on my own, not expecting to see a soul. And two things happened. One, you came out. I came uh, out and... We, we watched Hearts of Darkness the, and got so drunk that both of us were violently ill. Yeah. Like, it wasn't I, a hangover. It was like... I don't know what... It was what, like that bit in um, <laughs> Witches of Eastwick when she's eating the, someone's eating the cherries and that poor woman is hoofing them up. Stand by me. That's, and Witches oh, of no, Eastwick. Oh, no, that's true. Witches of Eastwick, there's a cher- that's the cherry pie in Stand by Me yeah. where he eats all the pies and then he... It, yeah. Lard it was ass. like that. It was like that's that a, plus Mr. Creosote. Everything. I mean, it was... I don't know what our problem was. We both needed to let off steam. First, we went out for a, a meal around the corner. Yeah. Had steaks, I remember... And just drank a bottle of red wine each, and then probably another one back at the flat while we were watching. Oh yeah, easily. Hearts of Darkness on the projector, easily. and then blah. <laughs> yeah. I could barely walk to yeah. the station the next day. No, it was horrible. Oh, but, yeah. And I think it was the next day. I'd sort of seen you off, and I was feeling rather rough. And I got a message from Jason saying, "Would you like to meet for a coffee? Because I'm here in Paris." Mm. So I sort of got myself together. Thought it'd be nice to see Jason, and I went to meet him in a cafe. But what I didn't know, there were other people with him. And one of those people was his mum, Talia Shire, who is an amazingly famous actress. Adrian. 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 She's in The Godfather. And then opposite her was Sofia Coppola, with her partner at the time, who is now her husband and father of the kids, is uh, Thomas from Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Further along the, the table. Band. Yeah, further yeah. along the table, we have Steve Gagan, who is a very well known director. And then at the end there, where's Anderson? And I was wretched and stinking. I hadn't bought any change of clothes except for underwear changes. And I was really quite repellent. You know, and here's a very well-turned-out bunch of people. You can imagine what they look like, right? And we're in this cafe, and they were all very gracious. And I remember um, being, you know, thoroughly impressed by everybody. And then Sophia said rather casually, Hey, I'm shooting Marie Antoinette in um, Versailles right now. You should come along. And I thought it was one of those... Yeah, it's nice. It won't follow through. But the next day, I got a phone call from Wes. And uh, he said, oh, I'm in a car right now. Sophia has sent a car for us. So do you want to come? I'm I'm coming past your flat. So I, again, this whole weekend, it was supposed to be a man on his own, quietly getting his thoughts together. It was suddenly going all over the place. I can't come, I'm afraid. I'm doing some heavy masturbation. Really, really quite intense, yes. And (laughs) so I got in the car with him and we went out to this... Palace of Versailles, and he's really chatty and nice, as you're about to find out. And um, there we are, with all these people dressed in their costumes, and Jason Schwartzman on a giant horse, uh, galloping around the place. And he was in the film, or was he just... He's in the film. to be on a horse. <laughs> to be on a horse, <laughs> that's his thing. It's his rider. I'm, yeah. going, I'm going to gallop around on my horse I'll just Versailles. be over here, yeah. And there were all these other people there, like... Pedro Moldova. What was he doing there? I don't know. She just sort of graciously welcomes everyone whilst making the film. And then there was some, someone took some photographs. I think Wes has some photos. I can't remember. But it was really lovely and strange. And then that was that. I never saw any of them again uh, for, for years except Wes. I used to see Wes a lot. Paris Atmos. Hey, Garth, can I just use your pump? Yeah. My tires need some pumping. <laughs> A pump that I like for my bike is a big one Cause I get the job done quick 
plus you've got the valve adapter to fit the fat boy and the skinny prick. And on a big bump, you got a pressure gauge. If you're into numbers and shit, if the needle drops while the tube's connected, then you got a hole in it. All right, we're here. That was quick. Gonna get some audio of you chaining up your bike. Oh. Isn't that nice? Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. 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 Adam, let me introduce you to Wes. Sorry, Adam, I didn't. Hello, Wes. I wouldn't have just walked away. How are you? Yeah, how are you? Thank you. Um, you like coffee? Is there a. Uh, I don't know. Adam, I'm sure I've told you about Adam in the past. Yeah, because we've been to. Yeah. We're sort of family. Yeah. Really, our families, our children have grown up at the same time. And Have you gone? Have you stayed in yurts and things like that? Yeah, together? we've done holidays. We've done all that, yeah. In fact, even this. Well, did, wasn't there a yurt at some point? It was a yurt. Yeah. That was Ed, wasn't it? That was Ed. Ed no, organised the yurts? Or, or, yeah. or did you not go to the yurts? I didn't do the yurts. Oh, you didn't do the yurts. No. Yeah, he was like, no, that's, that was... Right. I'm too snooty for it. <laughs> no yurts. Yeah. I mean, I would like to stay in a yurt, but I would, I would want it to be a kind of a great yurt. Yeah. Luxury yurt, yeah. yeah. These were lovely, and I bet there are nice ones. I bet there are loads of nice ones. I just haven't looked into it for years. Because we haven't done that for years. Well, you like, sort of covered There's it. something wonderful about all sleeping in a big... Round, we had all the children with us. Actually, there were only three of them at the time, but it was beautiful. That thing of everyone in the same room. Right. Just that's fun. It is lovely. Yeah. And you know, when you say good night, it's so dark when you blow out the final candle. It's like the Waltons. Yeah. <laughs> it is for us. It's like good night. Yeah. Asa, good night, Casper. Good night. That, that reference even exists in your. I mean, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know the Waltons had just translated they showed no. that they used to show the Waltons of an afternoon oh, in the yeah. UK that oh. was like I don't know if I should say padding or yeah. filler would you say that was filler I'm going to move that afternoon up. filler yeah I mean I suppose it depends on who you talk to I mean yeah. some people, for some people it was not filler but my all, mother for instance she'd like that yeah. For your mum, it was all killer. It was killer. But let's not focus entirely no. on the Waltons. Okay, all right. We saw your film last night and we loved it. Oh, good. Absolutely good. loved it. And Where? I took the boys along as well. Oh, good. And it was a hit. Asa's the youngest, right? Yeah. And, and Asa how old is Asa? He's seven and he's he the only one that had a moment. I should have said, by the way, there's a bit of blood... Yeah, but it's not the blood. I tell you what the bit was. There was only one bit where he really was <gasps> squeamish. The sushi scene. Mm. Do you remember when you, you know that really graphic stripping of the fish and then turning it into sushi? I don't Certainly want to give the plot away. Certainly I know. Yeah, of course you know it. Uh, but that was, he was going, <gasps> and then when the octopus tentacle comes out still wriggling. He didn't find that he fun. Was, very freaked out by that but in a good way yeah you know it passed by and he was so in love with the puppies and the dogs and everything else so it's fine that you got him through it okay that's good it does have some darker moments yeah um but okay well that's good Wes, can, can i uh, yes will it be comfortable if you sort of lean forward a little bit yes it will be comfortable thank you yeah. and you know if you if you get angry and annoyed with leaning forward <laughs> it's not the end of the world <laughs> but it's optimal this way it's like an int- very intimate experience for them. yes we're yes. in there they're in, in this little yeah, circle they're, yeah. they're, they're like the here. fourth yeah, microphone exactly. yeah. yeah when we came out of the screening one of the first things garth said of course garth is working on his second animated movie aimed at the uh world of children yeah but he said wow Pretty much all those ideas would not get past a, yeah. a big studio. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I loved it. Well, but also, you're making movies that really are genuinely for children. Yeah. And 
to be seen by a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, a humongous audience. Our movie, I don't even know if it's for children in the first place. <laughs> we, we never really even thought about it yeah. at, past a certain point. I mean, originally, what I'm going to do now is not going, is, does not promote the film. It was a, we, we intended to make it a short. That's really not, you're not supposed to say it was a, sh it was really just supposed to be a short. Um, it grew, out. you think? Yeah. yeah. A lot of films have come out short films. You're just anticipating the critics rubbing their hands and saying, this it's, is a film that st started out as a short and should have stayed a short. Exactly. Because it's grotesquely overextended at 90 minutes or whatever. Precisely. Right. Because I do, every now and then I do have a feeling about a movie, maybe it should have been a short. Right. Um, but this one we felt the opposite. I hope we were right. We started th thinking it was, going to be animated but we never really associated that with it being for children at one point our thought was that we would go make the movie in japan that it would be animated in japan and we'd work with an entirely japanese production and in japan animated movies aren't really for aren't necessarily for children they're for families but they're much less focused on yeah. being for very young people um and it, in the end, I mean, there isn't really a Japanese stop-motion community of the... The place that has the great stop-motion world is England. I mean, yeah. Oregon in America and England. And we're sort of neither. We're, we're people from both and people from all other places as well who kind of get brought together for the, the two we've done. This is the second uh, animated movie that I've done yeah. in England. And so you did Mr. Fox in England. Yeah, we did the yeah. same place as Bromley... By Bo. You've yeah. worked at Three Mills, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I did an Alison Moyet video there. Yeah. I remember coming down to the set of Fantastic Mr. Fox, and it was beautiful. Those those lovely models and sets. And yes. It just makes you want to be part of it. Well, you are in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Did you record... Was your voice recorded there? At yes. The yes. Yeah, yes. I did it in... I think it was your office. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, you played a... I think your character was modeled on Prince Harry. It was, yes. <laughs> yes. With chocolate yeah. around his face. That's right. He was, yeah. I mean, I don't want to be unfair to Prince Harry, but it wasn't your most attractive character. He was well played. He was very well played. And, and I he, loved doing that. Oh yeah, but, but also, I mean, Prince Harry didn't inspire the behavior of the character no. on any level. It was simply the, the, fa the facial structure, let's say, the, and the, the, yeah. the coloring and so on. Because they've also got... The, the, uh, it looked like you used a waxy uh, material for the faces in this one. In this Is one. Is it different well, to the first one? Yes. With, with Fantastic Mr. Fox, what I enjoyed with the, the animation of that movie were the animals because they're very kind of complex, sophisticated faces with bones. And the animators can work with them in the most intricate ways and they can really make these little bit... I mean, you, we have some here in this room. Oh, yeah. and you can see oh, these... They're quite small, and, but they're filled with... The faces are filled with little paddles and uh, joints and you can make them very, very expressive. The human faces in Fantastic Mr. Fox are a similar kind of method, but they're rubber. They're, uh, there's a rubber kind of surface and they don't hold up that well. They break, they age, they don't... They're just not great. And on this one, we kept the same kind of um, animation and kind of puppetry for the dogs in the movie, but the humans we used is something that's, you know, a little more common now, which is you replace the faces frame by frame. You use special plugs to replace a mouth or a part of the face. Oh, I see, right. You digitally uh, paint out the seams. And the, the reason that's particularly popular now is because they can laser print them. They can print thousands of them and that ours 
we were going to do it that way, but we ended up do, just doing them all by hand because it worked a bit better for us. So we kind of got the disadvantages of both methods. Um, but, but we did find this, this kind of resin that had not been used before for these sort of puppets, and they're sort of translucent. Yeah, it's great. And, yeah, and we, we liked it. I mean, also the other thing is we did a thing which is painting a lot of detail into the faces, which makes it very, very hard to match. It just makes it... At one point I decided we were going to have a limited number of faces, but they were going to be extremely detailed and finely painted, which has to be done by hand. But then as we were actually doing the scenes, we needed more and more and more of these faces. It wasn't good enough without more expression and yeah. movement. And so then you're doing, now people are saying, this is exactly what we said we couldn't do. We can't do this many faces, this detail, but it's too late. Yeah. And we have to just keep going. Um, I feel bad about that, but you know, we did it anyway. I think yeah. most people assume that stop motion is incredibly labor intensive and is probably the most time consuming way of making a film. Is that still the case? I would say yes, it probably is. I mean, it's. I How was it taken? It took. Well, I don't really know. I don't really keep track of things like months and, and even years on a uh, yeah. movie like this, but I think it was two years or so of shooting. Right. Um, and there's probably. It, it, we spent about a year making just the animatic. And that was just me and one storyboard artist named Jay Clark, who lives in Oxford, and one editor named Edward Birch, who lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the three of us working for, um, yeah, but it was, but it was about a year because working with a, just a small group like that. Um, I remember, you've just reminded me, because when you showed me that animatic, and I remember there was a scene and you asked me about it afterwards that wasn't in the film in the end. Oh, yes. Where, am I allowed to say? Yes. All right. There was a scene where the dog, <laughs> where, the, where the bad guys were testing a, a sort of gas that would kill the dogs. Yes, it's true. We had a scene where we gassed this chihuahua, <laughs> which, I, which, which I thought was a reasonably effective scene. I remember it was one of the, it was the only time I was watching it was like, oh, I better say something. <laughs> you know, and it's awkward because I've loved everything. And, I was, and then you said, uh, I think someone else had mentioned it or something. Yes, and, it's uh, true. Don't uh, guess the chihuahua. I mean, no, but is, you had a great, it, I remember laughing because I remember saying, well, maybe if the, 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 he wasn't suffering and maybe if the gas smelt nice. And I remember- Like a saying, vape. Yeah, and you went, oh, right. He could just say, smooth. <laughs> and then keel over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was supposed to be a funny scene of yeah. the dog being gassed, but maybe we just didn't find the way to do that. No um, one's cracked that nut yet, have you? <laughs> no. You have yeah. to get it just right. My boys were laughing their heads off when you were showing all the ailments. Uh, the yes. dogs would like turn to camera. Yes, yes. Or there was a cut where one was lonely, or right. you know, or one was uh, just there were there were like an ear hanging off. The ailments were so extreme and funny. Yeah. I don't think I've laughed at diseases as much as yes, I have. Yes. That was so good. It's a bit bleak, I think. No, it's yeah. not. It's really good, that bit. I really love it. Where does it come from? What sort of made you determined to make this your next project? It was really, when we were doing Fantastic Mr. Fox, we would drive, when I would go to the studio, I would see this sign that said Isle of Dogs. Um, and I'd never been to Isle of Dogs. I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of it. And before I kind of found out about it, I think I started just imagining what might that be like. And that was the <laughs> beginning of this movie. Then I kind of gathered a few thoughts that it was going to be an, uh, that the Isle of Dogs was a garbage dump and it was, um, and it was sort of this man-made landscape, like nature, but man-made nature, if that makes yeah. any sense. 
and um and what the this pack of dogs were like that they were all sort of alpha dogs called chief king rex etc and i told that to jason schwartzman and roman coppola and we started talking about it but we had another idea which was that we wanted to do a movie together in japan so somewhere along the way we sort of mixed them and that's when we started to come up with a with a story every scene i mean it's like so many of your films particularly grand budapest hotel i remember watching it and, and luxuriating in how much you can enjoy every frame, you know, and obviously you're well known for mm. paying a lot of attention to, to the construction of those frames and how they work as like a little art piece in itself, really. Who are the people that you take inspiration from in that way? You know, we had, we had some basic inspirations. Akira Kurosawa, his city movies especially, um, like Stray Dog and High and Low and The Bad Sleep Well. And Miyazaki, particularly how he handles uh, his interest in nature and portraying nature in animation. Really, I mean, there aren't that many. I mean, Watership Down maybe might have some of this. Um, but we don't see American movies where there are montages that are just about leaves and grass yeah. we don't pause for that yeah, I mean Jason points out Jason said the silences of Miyazaki movies were part of our Miyazaki Studio Ghibli Maestro that's the Studio Ghibli Maestro yeah. yes Miyazaki and that's the that's the one uh, so I think those who I and mean, we also there are these uh, Hokusai and Hiroshige uh, I think you call it Yukio-e woodblock prints. Mm -hmm. um, and right. there was an exhibition here in Paris of those right before we started this project. And then um, in, at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, they have a huge collection of these. And we went through all their archives and we just took pictures of these. And they became a giant influence. I mean, more than the influence, we were using these images to make new images, really. We were, we were stealing from them. It's nice yeah. to have a director just not use the word homage and just go for stealing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, homage suggests... It's the polite way of saying, so who, who did you steal from for, for this film? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. I think that's more accurate. <laughs> no, there's a bit at the end, there's a purple mountain and the owl flying over it. And there's one moment that is, like you say, that you don't have very often in animated films is the, just all the blossom. Cherry blossom. Yeah, yes. just coming off, falling off the trees and things like that. I suppose Bambi did have, you know, like April shower sequence and things like that, did have its moments of... Yes, I mean, Bambi does have, a, probably, I bet, I should see Bambi again, because I bet that does have the expression of nature in a more... They were definitely thing. going for it in yeah. a way that you probably wouldn't see otherwise these days. Yeah. But do watch out if you show it to your child, because uh, it does, I can't remember how old she is, but... Um, She's two. Right. Yeah. I remember a four-year-old one of ours was four and it was the most traumatic thing Bambi's notorious though I mean that's the original traumatizer that needs to come with a yeah. massive trigger warning on the front <laughs> yeah you can't watch it until you're 25 yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. also yeah. Pinocchio is surprisingly Pinocchio when he changes when he transforms is shocking any kind of physical transformation or mutation for a child to see is very upsetting and strange I think well of course in Pinocchio they send a load of naughty boys to an island where they get to smoke drink vandalise the property and then they're then they're put into cages and turned into donkeys and sent down salt mines. Yeah, yeah. you can't. I I would talk about ideas I couldn't pitch anymore. That would be one of them. It I wouldn't be. be able to get that. Really, past. Pinocchio. Yeah. What if you said let's do Pinocchio? That could do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would do it. Get around. 
don't mention the, the salt mines and the vandalism. But you'd have to just say we've got a bestseller. Yeah. Well, no, I think if you've got... Because I think someone like Guillermo del Toro was going to do it. You do Dark Pinocchio. Go full Christopher Nolan, Dark Pinocchio. And then it's not even necessarily a children's... You can't understand what anyone's saying. It's all dark. It's like... Geppetto yes, turns out not, to be a kitty fiddler or something, oh, and that's no, why he makes. That. <laughs> Listen, you ask for it. I'm just <laughs> trying to tackle some real issues with the new Dark Pinocchio. Hey, everybody in the modern time, they got to get themselves a podcast. I will do yours and you'll do mine. We're sorting out the problems of the world so fast. Hey, Wes, I got you a gift. Some Bowie Trumps, and they're made lovingly by an artist friend of mine from Cardiff. Wow. I didn't know that. These yeah. are David Bowie collectible cards. Do you know the game Trumps? No. What is Trumps? When we were at school, we played Top Trumps, and you'd be able to get Top Trumps tanks, motorbikes, yes. racing cars, etc. And you'd have different values, various strengths and weaknesses of that type, that model. And then you would deal out the cards and you say, okay, I, I, my Spitfire's got lots of PowerPoints. How many yeah. is yours? I've got the sock with camel. It's got less PowerPoints than your Spitfire. And then you win the card off the other person. So we've got Bowie Trumps, all Bowie's different incarnations, different characters from throughout his life. So for example, here we've got Aladdin Sane. Yes, that we've should got be a the, very valuable one. But then you've got more obscure ones like Paul von Przgodzki. What is that one from? Oh, that's from Just a Gigolo. Just a Gigolo. I, uh, is, uh, have you seen that? Yeah. I've never seen it. Don't worry about it. No. No, you're Don't okay. <sighs> Elephant Man, for example. So I've got... Oh, Elephant Man on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to play my Elephant Man against... Aladdin Sane. Okay, so you've selected Aladdin Sane. I'm selecting Dow Jones. Tao Jones, where's he from? Earthling album, 1997. Earthling album. So that's Bowie with Ginger Goatee, not one of my favourite Bowie phases. No, okay. Good luck with that. Okay. Here we go. Let's play, I'm going to pick Alien Factor. Elephant Man, my Alien Factor is 25. I'm allowed to say I've got a 44. Oh, your Alien Factor is 25. We, so I think we both have to give our cards to Wes because okay. Aladdin Sane wins. Aladdin Sane is a very, very strong card. It's got to be one of the strongest cards, surely. Yes. I mean, even his... He, he has some, there's something at the bottom which is just called Bowie Rating and he's got a 91. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's massive. I mean, that's one of the most iconic album cover images of all time. It's now at that point where it's on people's walls and yes. even if they don't know what it is. Right. It's like a Ramones T-shirt. You yes. don't, you, you know, you may never have listened to the music, but you yeah. know that that's a good logo well, yeah, to have on yeah, your shirt. Because little children have those t-shirts now. Yeah. And, yeah. You, and I'm sure some of them have heard the Ramones. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not sure. Beton the Brat. Yeah. Beton the Brat. <laughs> that's what they've heard. Did you meet him? Because you, I know you had loads Johnny of... Ramon? Yeah. No, I, no, I, David Bowie. I can't Oh, remember. I did meet him once. Yeah. Very briefly. Was it because of the music in... Um, in Life Aquatic, we used David Bowie songs interpreted by Sao Jorge, who made his own arrangements and yeah. sang them in Portuguese. And David Bowie, he had allowed us to use it, but I never met him along the way. After the movie was finished, we had a screening for him. And then this, someone called my mobile phone and said, you're, asked if I was me... And I said, yes, and I said, this is, I'm, this is David Bowie's uh, office and just want you to know to expect a call from him 
later this afternoon. So I just kept it in front of me till nightfall, but I never rang. Yeah, I mean, I think he was watching the movie. I think maybe the movie ended. He probably was not sure what he thought, maybe, or maybe he didn't, just simply didn't like it. But the right. best case scenario, I think, would be he just didn't know what to say. We don't know. Then, but then I, maybe a year later, I met him for a moment, and he was very nice. But um, I can't say that I was felt very relaxed. Presumably, you're a big fan, were you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I was not. I didn't even. I just kind of thanked him for being himself. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you were going through various Bowie phases, if you were looking through these trump cards, which would be your favorite Bowie? I think um, maybe this one. Thin White Duke. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he really did look. Like, he was one? he was horribly underweight then. Baal, you've Do got. Do you know that? that? Yeah, that was, that was Alan Clark's uh, BBC uh, film. It's a Brecht. Bertolt Brecht. Yes. It's really great. Yes. It's well worth a look. You've you've seen it, right, Wes? I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. So Bertolt Brecht, the German playwright, story of this kind of low life, amoral carouser who goes out, maybe murders someone, drinks a whole lot, treats yes. women badly. And so it's Bowie, unshaven, with kind of blackened teeth. It's Weimar period, right? right. Is that right? Or is it, or is it, or is it or earlier than that? That I makes think sense. Yeah. Yes. Do you know the Alan Clark movies? Have you seen many of them? Scum? Oh, that's yes. With, okay. That's Ray, Ray uh, Winstone. Yeah, it's yeah. his first role, which was first made for BBC, and then they didn't air it they decided we can't put this on television yeah and he remade it as a feature film they wouldn't let him have the movie to take away but they would allow they allowed him to remake it um and now the bbc one is a, is a part of a oh okay a, i think it maybe it's a bfi produced a big box set he did one with tim he made tim roth's first film which is um i confused this is england and made in britain which one is which? Shane, Shane uh, Meadows is This Is England. So Made in Britain was the... Made in Britain. It, it must be that. That's the Tim Roth, which is yeah. very, very good. And, um, and a great Gary Oldman one, The Firm. Do you know that? Early, I quite think early I've ever Gary seen Oldman. that. That's Jesus. a great movie. That's one of the last Alan Clark films. I feel a little bit embarrassed. I haven't seen There's that su- stuff. There's such a strange variety of things. Rita, Sue and Bob. Too. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's a masterpiece. That's his? Yes. That is a masterpiece. That's one of his... Maybe one of two feature films that he made two or th- two maybe um, I can quote lines from that one I feel better now you've brought me back into it with uh-huh. that one Rita Good. Sue and Bob too. I mean I just love it when he says I thought I were great after this sort of complaining that he wasn't that satisfying <laughs> oh, I thought I were great <laughs> I just always remember that sorry oh dear no, Baal is worth seeing. And, and he recorded uh, so um, an EP in Hansa. It was the last uh, thing that he recorded in, in that amazing studio in Germany, in Berlin. And it's, a re- it's really good. His singing yeah. is right on top. Yes, he's, I mean, ha- the, half of the play, he's sort of the, he's the main character, but he's also sort of the chorus, mm. I would say. And he, oh, and so he, he sings, sings in it as well. Yeah. He sings all through it. He sings a, a, almost a cappella. Yes. I mean, he, he's, it's almost like Japanese where you, you pluck a few strings to set the mood in between the lines. Something okay. like that. So like, like, set the key and then off you go. Yes. Is, is that right? Is that a sort of accurate? Yeah, I would say. And, the, and then the EP is all, all the songs and more re-recorded, beautifully recorded by the Tony Visconti. Yeah, musical settings. And his voice is never better. His voice is amazing. It's yeah. really good. Yeah. It was in that blue month of September. 
Uh, silent beneath a plum tree, slender shade, or something like that. That's good. And That's good he does it. He does it better than that. Sure. But it's really, it's it's <laughs> lovely. And I remember at the time, one of them even got into the charts. I think because one of the songs from Bar. Yeah. <laughs> one of the more up tempo songs, but they're all quite weird. And it got into the charts. And I remember as a Bowie fan, I was completely baffled. Is it a, it's a compulsion that leads you to explore that leading edge all the time? Yeah, I'm still a, a curiosity seeker, I'm looking at the uh, idiosyncrasies of, of things. A mountain or a tree is the manifestation of forces that we are not capable of dealing with. I'm very drunk in this. Do you get the opportunity to listen to music much? Yes, well, you know, lately, the music I've been listening to, I've been listening to much more of um, Mary Poppins and right. uh, Sound of Music, Okay. Um, uh, Singing in the Rain. These have not been traditionally things I could do, but my daughter is absolutely fixated on That's these. Uh, so I really, I, if not to just play them over and over again is kind of cruel. Is, does Mary Poppins have Let's Go Fly a Kite? Yes. Sure. Yes, yes. That's, I mean, yeah. just, that one we listen to. That's a hit, often. yeah. And which is the one where, they do, where the chimney sweeps are doing... Step the, in Time? Step, step in, in Time. time. Mm. Da, 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 step in Time. That's, that's, that's the one that's on multiple rooftops. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah they yes. pop out Very and everything. Set. And he was, great. He was about 45 or something when he shot that. What, Duke Van Dyke? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, he was well yeah, into his 40s, I think. Yeah, he was certainly, uh, uh, you know, if I'd been that age, I would not have been stepping in time. No, I would have been <laughs> heart attack, heart attack. I'm going to have a heart attack. That's what it would have been like for me. Oh, it's lovely though. Just little things and lovely things that, like, when they climb up smoke staircases, yeah. they blow the smoke and then they climb up, and it's full of lovely the ideas that st- stand up perfectly. Yeah. So, does she watch it, or does she only listen no, to music? No, she's, she she's never seen it. She's only um, listened to it. Uh, I, and I haven't seen it in a long time. I, I watched it because when we were doing the, a couple of movies ago, Moonrise Kingdom, yeah. that one, we had a scene at the end where I wanted to build... Like, I, I saw this, these set, rooftop sets, and I wanted to build these rooftop sets. We didn't have the money. We didn't have the time. We had to sort of... We had to come up with another solution, which was all right. But I mean, we really should have built the entire kind of. Uh, was that of some, did somebody just say no? We're not building it. It was just. It was too late. It was. Okay. It was. I added. It was. I mean, I, I didn't even get to the point to be told we're not paying for this. There just wasn't time to build it. I've only done one no rooftop set, and it was. And it was huge. Yeah, and it wasn't. It didn't. I didn't do it right, so you couldn't tell. That it was expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was underwhelming cinematically. But Which, what was it? What I was in a music video years ago for a, a, an artist you won't have ever heard of. Which one? Oh, uh, she was Swedish and I've forgotten her name. Lisa something. Have it's you good. done music videos, Wes? I've always wanted to, but I've never managed to actually do one. I mean, there was one, I almost did one for the Strokes years and years ago. Now, probably, that's probably 
15 years ago or right. maybe more I they they decided against my idea in the end I had something totally unrelated to what they actually were asking me to do and they decided they wanted to do what they wanted to do which I think is that's fair enough yeah that's, probably, <laughs> that's, a, that's a reasonably good policy but you've done loads of short films and commercials so short films yeah but they're not really commercials are they no I don't I, I, think, I would say commercial but they're sort of um, special occasion commercials a lot of them aren't kind they kind of so, I mean sometimes I've, I've done commercials where somebody has said the commercial is do whatever you want but I mean they're commercials so the you old... did H, was it H&M yeah. yeah that was brilliant and Garth Jennings starred in that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Adrian Brody providing some supporting. Yeah, yeah he tried work. to keep up with me. No, yeah. and I'd never seen you directing on set before and being in that world of those amazing train sets. Not yeah, the, not model train sets. I mean the sets of trains. God, it was great. And so you this was a to, for people who didn't see it. Oh yeah, describe it. Well, Wes was making it a commercial. It was, but it's a short film, really, isn't it? I, set on a train. I mean, it's so an H and M commercial. Everybody's in H and M clothes. It goes. It's H and M Christmas. Right. They do. Except me and Adrian Brody because we're the train staff. And I will say, you might be the best dressed. Thank you. In the. Thank you. Well, industry. I'm not surprised. Your costume lady was. It was Milena. Um, Canonero. Yeah. Yes. Who's won the Oscar so many times? She's sort of the best. So I walked in. I had no idea that that was going to happen. I turned up at that wardrobe fitting and got the best pair of green trousers I've ever seen in my life and she was amazing yeah you know what, what Milena's first movie was it was Clockwork Orange no can you believe that that's her, that's first... her first film yes oh. so she would have been responsible for coming up with those sort of iconic looks or was well, that something she, that Kubrick would have certainly she was responsible for making them yeah I don't know exactly I mean I have no idea what the process is I I there's nothing like that in the book, is there? There's nothing described like that in the book. Or is there? What is it? I can't remember. Well, I know from photographs I've seen online that they did like hat tests, trying to find the right hats and things. So it wasn't yes. like there was a hat no. that should be exactly this I, hat to follow the book. So they were clearly testing and trying I mean, things. I think it's safe to say Milena and Stanley Kubrick came up with, it, with yeah. what we see yeah. anyway. So this is... That's a... An amazing film. I thought start. she did The Hunger or something like that. Or she probably did do The Hunger. And that, but that's that, a, that's a Ridley or a Tony. The Hunger is Tony Scott. Tony right? is Tony. Yeah. Um, but Clockwork Orange, those costumes again to bring it yeah. round to Bowie. Everything comes back to Bowie. But that was a huge influence on him. That movie and those costumes and the boots. Yeah. You know the romper suits with yeah, boots. What a look. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's what they originally started dressing as. I think the spiders. And then they, it went more colourful. But I remember meeting her and being so impressed. And you have like a sort of family, don't you? Because they're sort of people you've worked with a lot. Yes, yeah. And well, we had to, yeah, on that one also we had, uh, we had Bruno Delbonel, who's a great uh, cameraman. Do you, yeah. You got to talk to Bruno. Yeah, he yeah. was great. Uh, he's great. And we had, and then we have Sanjay Sami. That's the person who's, who I remember the most. Yes, yeah, Sanjay is our key grip. It's a very unusual thing because normally, I mean... When you make a movie in South Africa or something, you might have somebody who's, who comes out of who who work who, somebody who comes from Mumbai or something like that who works in. It. But in Europe and in especially in America, you normally can't bring a grip. They, yeah. You know, they're unions and it's it's all regulated, and they won't give you a visa for somebody like that to come work. Somewhere along the way, we managed to establish 
we had to get all we had some senators and we had a whole group of people to just kind of express his role in our movies ever since we did Darjeeling Limited years ago and he's really a department head of his own he's he's uh, become this great collaborator yeah. for me what, is the, what does the key grip do then what are you responsible the, for the key grip does a whole variety of things but it's all has to do really with rigging it has to do with laying track and moving the camera and operating dollies and cranes and building scaffolding and maintaining safety in certain situations he's but he's the guy who figures out how are, if if the thing is that when the camera goes by we've got to flip open this yeah. wall and we've got to then drop the, then the floor's got to lift up and you know all these things that might have to happen he's involved with how we're going to really do it how how it's going to actually work and how it's going to be safe and how it's going to happen quickly during the shot and all those kind of things i remember that he was amazing but then there's this whole train set that would flip open so when the camera moved whole parts of the set would just disappear float away go up to the ceiling move back it was behind the camera was as impressive as in front of it it was so nice being in someone else's world for a bit yeah that doesn't happen to us especially with the catering was amazing have you been on other sets very rarely. You didn't visit the Star Wars set? I thought everybody visited the Star Wars. I don't know Wars. anyone involved in this. Well, one of the Star one? Wars movies. No, I didn't. I, yeah. I have a friend who's a director, and he got invited to go and sit in the Millennium Falcon. With, with Ryan... J.J. Um, Abrams. So it's J.J. Abrams, right. Yes. And uh, so it was Edgar Wright and Joe, oh, my Edgar. friend Joe Cornish, who went and they sat there on the Millennium Falcon. And when Joe told me that, I was quite angry. because they there was such a big deal about how they'd 3d printed all these panels from the original millennium falcon and recreated it like absolutely beautifully so it was all practical you know it was not not just great acres of green screen no it was a real millennium falcon yeah he started the movie by saying part four or whatever it is at that very first one he must have known i'm going to need this millennium falcon again God. It comes back. Yeah. Yeah. That has been a very useful spaceship. Do you hang on to the sets, like, from Mr. Fox and... Yeah, well, some of the I have all the puppets from Fantastic Mr. Fox. This one, I am archiving more stuff. I always archive the, the costumes and props and things. Ever since, the you know, the first movie I made, the studio department of, uh, that is in charge of them, they were reselling all our things. We, we saw these things being sold for, for... We would have bought everything for the amount that they were getting. Yeah. And we didn't have the chance. And, and, um, and even things that we put in prop storage that the studio had, we went back to do to reshoot something, and it was gone. It had been rented to somebody else, and they damaged something and lost something. And so from then on, I just started keeping everything myself. Um, and but, archiving but, it but, but sets are too big but that's quite you have to be quite clever about that don't you because I've tried moving things people uh, no, they, no, they, their job is to stop you doing that that's true but yeah you have to, <laughs> you have to kind of establish I mean I, I, I don't claim that I own all these things I just yeah. they just they know we trust ourselves to look after these things right. as well as anybody else and also that way we know what's going to happen to it yeah, um, and sometimes with these things, they you know they could decide we're going to get rid of some things, and they'll they'll make decisions, and there's just no system for telling you, and not necessarily anybody wants to anyway. So it'll was that and were those two puppets there? Were they used in the film then? Yeah. God, I thought they'd be bigger. Mm. Yeah, they probably those, should have been. That, 
<laughs> I mean, I think we went a bit small on some of the stuff. No, but the trouble is, though, if they go bigger, then your sets go bigger. Everything gets bigger, right? right. Yeah, but it probably should have. No, it's nice because you, you can oh, see beautiful. that it's real. Yeah. And it's yeah. not like a, a lot of modern stop motion looks like CG because it's so smooth and perfect. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it seems to be a bit self-defeating. And, that, and you can see that these things are real. These tiny little puppets are real. Yeah, and yeah. it's like the explosions and things yeah. you do and like steam that comes out of a beaker. Yeah. It's so nice that it's real stuff. Yeah. It really is kind of the one of well, the many, I think many things. A lot of, uh, with a lot of stop-motion movies, they now will do the backgrounds. They'll replace the backgrounds. Um, I mean, they'll... The, the whole the whole sets will be green screen and they're doing uh, CG backgrounds and so it's really just the puppets that are being animated and there's so much kind of fine tuning and polishing that's done in the computer for most so then that, that's why they get they just get so buffed that they look perfect we but I, but our budget I don't know I don't know are both same films the same kind of budget? Or is, it, um, is, it, is the new one bigger even? The, than the, new, the new one will probably... I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this stuff, but I'll say it oh, anyway. Yeah, you don't have to no, no, but I think it will be a little bit bigger. Yeah. The first one was under budget, which was good. You made under budget. We came yeah. in under, yeah. which is great. And then... But the next one, I think it goes up because I th- for the simple reason that the actors' fees are more the they second are. time around. Oh, really? It's, it, that's built into the that's, deal on the yeah. first one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but to movies like to make a movie like Sing is that can I is that like a hundred million dollar kind oh, of oh no uh, Sing was seventy I think seventy yeah right and what sort of budgets are you working with ours is like forty mm-hmm. um, but for you know we did Fantastic Mr Fox for the same as this one and Fantastic Mr Fox this one is much much bigger it's oh gotcha with three times as many puppets and. Uh, three times as many sets. I was going to say sets wise, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so so this one was a bit of a, it, it was a bit of a stretch, but we did have a lot of better systems in place on this one. But I think that's part of the thing. Like we, our movie is not so polished in part because it's just that we do, we we don't have that. We wouldn't we wouldn't be able to do that even if we wanted to to you know to get everything to finesse everything and. I'm really it all glad out. you didn't. Yeah, yeah. I think it, and actually you don't come away you don't come away going. Well, it's very rough. It's the opposite. Come away going that I just saw something beautiful. Yeah, like, all those true. guys on the boats. I don't want to ruin a, a plot yeah. point, but when they're all on the boats and and then that like, when you're following a a beacon at one point, it's yeah. in time with the drums. It's full of all this delicious stuff, delicious detail, beautiful details. And when they are in Professor Watanabe's science lab, Professor Watanabe is trying to formulate this uh, oh yeah vaccine for this disease. The dogs have. And the sci-fi detail of all the machines in there <laughs> yeah. was just great. Have you? Is that a genre that you would ever be into doing a movie in? That was a bad sentence, but but I, yeah, <laughs> um, I, um, I think um, yes, I would. I mean, I, I kind of almost think almost any genre. Some uh, you know, if you think up the right characters yeah. to go with it or something like that, um, I would like to. I mean, that one, the set you're talking about is. It's a lot of, let's, I would say, decorative action that goes into this scene. But, and, but also, I think it was something to say, it took so long to figure out what to do. The number of versions of this scene, uh, which I don't even want to, I won't even bother to describe what happens in the scene because it's, uh, it's just, you know, sort of science experiments or something. But 
in order to make it actually work in the movie, I, I don't know. That, that sushi scene you referred to, that is just disproportionate with the end result. I mean, what went into it? The that's end also result's a pretty good. It's a build-up to an assassination. It's not and in normal, in a kind of thriller, born identity thing, you would normally see the guy look, taking the box, opening the gun, taking it out the foam, you know, and assembling the silencer on the... You know, you would, you, you're used to that sense of ceremony yes. in a build-up to something that is going to be deadly. Yes. But never with fish... Never or octopus no. never been done this way before. never been done you've totally <laughs> broken the mold that I just remembered something there was a character in it and she was the she was the assistant to the, 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 the Yoko Ono was it Yoko Ono Yoko Ono yeah was actually her doing the voice it is good work that's great <laughs> yeah I mean you've got a sort of spectacular I didn't know yeah. that ludicrous voice cast who may, I mean Let's just reel off. Well, can you reel off a few of the names you've got in there? Yes, we've got. Well, Yoko Ono, originally we had a character. That, the one thing that I would say is homage is that we had named a character Yoko Ono and I thought we'd make her look like Yoko Ono just because I love Yoko Ono. Yeah. And then I thought, well, maybe Yoko Ono would say, yeah, I, didn't, I don't know Yoko. I've met her only twice. And um, anyway, she said yes. Um, so we have we have but it hurts a quite a small part. We have um, Brian Cranston who has He's a great. He has a big part, um, and we've got Liev Schreiber has a yeah. he plays Spots the bodyguard dog. Yeah. Um, we have um, Frances McDormand plays an interpreter. Yeah. In it and it, she has a, she probably has more dialogue than anybody else in the movie except for yeah. maybe Brian Cranston. Um, We've got Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray and Jeff Goldblum and... Um, Greta Gerwig, who's the great... Greta Gerwig. Uh, She's a foreign exchange student. Foreign exchange student, radical. Yes. Um, oh, man. She's Newspaper. got this great uh, white afro. It's There's a cut. Yes. The first time you see her head to toe, I really laughed out loud. Oh, She's really, standing yeah. there, so legs apart, so very determined at making a pronouncement at the school. And it's such a funny character. The character is really based on... Did you ever see An Angel at My Table? Yeah. Yes, that was the... Insp- I mean, the personality is quite different, but the hair uh, is definitely uh, directly from Jane Campion. Right. Um, Janet Frame, I think, is the name of the... That's right. I've forgotten about that film. Yeah, that that's was great, a great wasn't it? movie, yeah. Yeah. regularly these days then no no, no I, I've only been to Japan once okay um, the I'm going next month or uh, I'm going in in May um, but um, to talk about the movie to talk about the movie where did you go when you first went I went to Tokyo yeah. and uh, I went to Kyoto right have you been to Japan yeah we I spent uh, about 10 weeks out there with my comedy wife Joe oh yes in uh, just after my son my first son was born he was very little. He was only about six months old. And I got this job to do a TV show about Japanese popular culture. Yeah. Which ended up being called Adam and Joe Go Tokyo. But it was amazing. Made a, a huge impression on me. I, I think about it all the time yeah. still. Yeah, um, me too. The, this movie really comes from the fact that Roman and Jason and I all wanted to be there. But that because you've gone around the world with your films. You've sort of had adventures while making them. 
Yeah, that's true. And that's you know, like you go to India or you'll go to yeah. We Winnipeg. wanted we wanted to make a movie in Japan. That was really what we wanted to do, and uh, we didn't get the chance with this in the end because we made, decided to make an animated thing. Yeah. But um, Darjeeling Limited, that one was a great just the making of that movie and Life Aquatic. Those were real yeah. adventures. Yeah, that movie we were we were really at sea often. You know, the, the, the way that <laughs> literally we, and metaphorically. No, both. <laughs> I would say especially metaphorically, um, but um, but we were but you know the original plan for the movie was there was a short period of time where we would be on our real boat, which are on the water. But the weather, the way the way it actually worked out, we went out to sea continuously throughout the whole movie. We would work for a few days at the studio, which is Chinichita, and then we'd say, okay, the seas are meant to be low on Thursday, and we'd go. It was the kind of thing where if we could redo it, we could do it so much more efficiently and it, you know, it was a real struggle. There were been, so many things that were challenging. I was going to say, I've never been that good on the sea. Like, I'm fine with a, a nice flat sea, yeah. obviously, but if it gets choppy, I really you fall to pieces. Sick. Yeah. Well, Did, I don't, was I, it like that? I'm perfectly capable of getting seasick. I, don't, I never got seasick during the movie because probably you just sort of go into a little bit of a zone yeah. where, you know, I mean... You're so focused on what you need to get. There's no time. Yeah, you, other things are making you unhappy. Hadn't you seen the documentary <laughs> about Jaws? Yeah. Hadn't you seen how hard it was for Spielberg to get all that stuff? He really figured it out, though. He did make it work. Yeah, it in the worked. end. But but he, he still, well. but he still says like, have you seen that uh, the new Spielberg documentary? No, it's I good. don't think so. It's good. It is. That's uh, why it was an HBO one. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. But he he restates there how what what a nightmare it was. And yeah. Just not being everything taking ten times longer than he thought it would. Yeah, but he had the patience. He somehow, on some level, trusted that he and he knew what things were going to actually work. They figured yeah. it all out somehow. Plus, yeah. he had a cantankerous actor there in the form of Robert, Robert Shaw. Shaw, yes, who was quite a handful apparently. Yes, I can imagine. But you seem to take pains to have. A sort of sympathetic family of performers when you I've do had most some cantankerous ones oh, yeah. along the way. I have had a few um, bumpy ones. Gene Hackman, I, I, I was when we did the Royal Tenenbaums. Gene Hackman had a big part in the movie. He's you know there for the whole shoot, and I never really we we worked out some of our we figured out a way to work together. I could have done so much if I, that's another that's like the sea. If I had been there before right. and had enough time to think about it if I had in this I mean, if I had some years to think about it I would go back and I'd do better for him I think I would make it I feel like I would be able to to uh, you know I mean I remember one before in trying to convince him to do the movie because he didn't want to do it I had said to him I promise you that you'll be happy during this movie and at one point during the movie he shouted at me you promised me I would be happy I know I remember <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> what's the comeback I th- my, I, I don't I, uh, comeback might not be the word no, no. I think I kind of crumbled okay um, I, I think I, pr- I would I, after, I if Gene Hackman said that to me I said something like I thought you would be <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the same as a promise yeah what would you yeah. say God? what to Gene Hackman I'd have gone very Essex yeah do you want a cup of tea Gene does your voice go wobbly, Wes, when you're in a confrontational situation? I mean, I did have some confrontational situations with him. I, 
I don't think I got very wobbly in those. Uh, but at least he was quite straight with you. It wasn't like a passive aggressive thing. Right, he didn't sulk. No, no. I used to have crew that didn't, you know, if they didn't like someone, roll their eyes. If I was saying, oh, let's do one more, I'd see somebody roll their eyes and stuff like that. I used to hate anyone. that stuff. Yeah. That's oh, we're going again. He wants another one. Let's do it again. You've kind of taken yourself outside of that world in a way, and presumably you're keen just to create a, a nice environment for yourself and the performance, and that's part of the way you make your films. Is that yes, right? Well, I really, I think, really, I like to have a, a very comfortable luxurious entertaining place for everybody to be after we finish work what i really want is everybody to stay together while we're shooting and then afterwards i would rather work on location and have us all stay together and have it something where everybody goes back and it's and you know you go home when the movie is all finished basically so would you all get together of an evening while you were doing grand budapest hotel Yes, we had. We all lived in a little. You know, we found when we found the place to shoot, we found a town where there was a location that I thought we could make into the hotel, which was a department store, an abandoned department store, and a little hotel, not far yeah. from it. And we um, and we all lived in the little hotel. We took over the whole hotel. And, and where, where where was this? It's in a place called Görlitz. It's on the border of. Saxony, Germany, and Poland, and very near Czech Republic, that uh-huh. little corner. And yes, yeah, so we all we had a cook that we uh, that we knew who had come in, and and there was no restaurant in the hotel, but there was a breakfast kitchen, and he made the breakfast kitchen into the real kitchen. And we had the the ground floor of the hotel was the costume, I mean the makeup and hair department, and the um, dinner room, um, and that's we all had dinner there every night. And then, and you know, I think really, it's we try to do it where we're wrapping and we're going home and dinner's ready in 20 minutes or something or, you know, yeah. very soon. And everybody's, everybody can be completely relaxed, but also you can kind of go up to your room early and be ready for the next day. And we always, and now we do this thing where the costumes are in the actor's room. So when they come up from dinner, their costume is ready and they just put that on in the morning rather than going to the set and going to a having a trailers and all that stuff yeah. we don't do anything they just go in these in their costumes it's all it's works better for me yeah yeah it's wow. more fun i think too yeah because i i noticed as well with makeup and things like that you don't a bit like we started to do which was just pull back on that constant touching up like whenever you cut people felt the need to rush in and touch things yes and very often you don't need to no I noticed you got that people weren't fiddling around no we do the makeup at the hotel and then we try to not have anything happen on the set sometimes some, sometimes yeah I was really impressed by that I, but that's the thing I like that you've created a little world around the production yeah I love being part of that good it and did fun. you do the same thing that, can you do that with animators no for me, it's the exact opposite. I mean, I did this whole movie from my computer, from home. I almost never went to the actual set. And I'm in touch with all the different, with each individual set and with all the different departments. But it's all, I do it all. So what, have you got computer. like GoPros rigged up so you can see what they're doing on the sets or Some, something? Yes, we do. But, uh, but I almost never use that. I mean, I, I, you know, I can look through the camera of each set. Oh, I see. And I can go from unit to unit. But I rarely did that. Really what I do is people send me quick times 
I respond to it. I'm not very often on the telephone with anybody. It's all really just email messages and still pictures or videos that are being sent back and forth, sometimes recordings, um, and the whole thing is done that way. It, it's, it is like a crazy way to work because it means that for 14 hours a day, for you know six days a week of two years, you have to be prepared to just sit at the computer all day long because there are so many units going at once and so many different people who need something that if you get, if you start to fall behind, it just becomes, you know, it's just, we can't afford it. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, then I don't mind. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm happy to kind of work from home for a while Yeah. and um, I'm sure it's not very healthy. But, I was going to say, like, do you have a, a special stand-up desk with a treadmill on it or something? No, but I do, but I, but I move her, I have a, a computer in the kitchen, a computer in, in different places, I move from place to place. Oh, I and see. It, wow, you're like a super villain with just, <laughs> no one ever sees the director, he just drifts around, and he's probably, he's like the guy in, uh, he's like John Hurt's character in Contact, who's, he's ill and he has to... Um, exist in the air only. He's on his private plane. Do you remember that character? Why is he staying that, in the air? Is that, um, is that like a Zemeckis or something? What um, is Contact is. Contact, is it Zemeckis? Yeah, maybe. The one with Jodie Foster. Yeah. Jodie Foster. Yeah. I don't know if I ever saw Contact. Contact is Oh, good. Contact, we're, we're, we're in with Aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's really got some great stuff in it. I She's brilliant Contact. in it. It's one of my favourite films. It's not all great. Anyway. Um, yeah. But you are like that. You're like a weird... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area, and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website, if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Cheerfully. Welcome back, podcasts, listeners, quartermasters, however you identify. Wes Anderson there with Garth Jennings. Thank you very much to both of them for their time and uh, hospitality. That was good fun going out and seeing them in Paris. I love Paris in the springtime or any other time. Felt very lucky to be out there. Uh, Incidentally, before I carry on, the Bowie Trumps, I'm sure you want to know, are made by Casey Raymond. I didn't actually name check him there. They are, as I speak, available online from etsy.com, E-T-S-Y.com. 
If you go there and type in Bowie Trumps, I think you'll find them. Uh, Before I go today, I wanted to mention something else Wes-related that I thought you might find interesting. I found it interesting, and I didn't bring it up in our conversation with him because I hadn't met him before, and it wasn't really that sort of interview. It was a a friendly chat, I suppose, and I, I was worried that this might be a bit weird to bring up. I'm sure some of you know about this already, but I found online in the course of reading about Wes a little bit this letter, an open letter from Steely Dan, Walter Becker, no longer with us, sadly, and Donald Fagan, written back in 2006, an open letter to Wes Anderson. So you can search for that. It's there online in various places, and it's quite long, so I won't read the whole thing. But uh, back in 2006, they wrote this letter and posted it on their website. Something that I think they've done once or twice before uh, for various reasons. And it's a little bit jokey, but also has quite an edge to it, as you will hear. It starts like this, too. Wes Anderson. Maestro. As you may know, we are founders of the celebrated rock band Steely Dan. If for some reason you don't know our work, check with Owen and Luke Wilson. They're both big fans. Here's something you may not know about us. When not distracted by our day job, composing, recording, touring and so forth, we like to head downstairs into the panelled basement of our minds and assume the roles we were born to play. You may have already guessed it by now, the roles of obsessive fans of world cinema. So they set themselves up as cineasts before saying to Wes... Let's put our cards on the table. Surely we're not the first to tell you that your career is suffering from a malaise. Fortunately, to the extent that you have not become so completely alienated from the intellectual and moral wellsprings of your own creativity, we're hoping that we, yours truly, Donald and Walter, may successfully intervene at this point in time and be of some use to you with your latest and potentially greatest endeavour. Now, at this point, Wes Anderson had just released The Life Aquatic, I think, or at least that was his last film, and he was about to embark on production for the Darjeeling Limited. The letter from Steely Dan continues, An artist of your stripe could never be guilty of some sort of willing harlotry that befalls so many bright men who take their aspirations to Hollywood and their talent for granted. You have failed or threatened to fail in a far more interesting and morally uncompromised way, brackets, assuming for a moment that self-imitation and modality dangerously close to mawkishness are not moral failings but rather symptoms of a profound sickness of the soul, close brackets. So it's all written in this kind of over-the-top, deliberately pompous um, style. But underneath it all is, is this genuine vein of quite harsh criticism. They appreciate what he's doing. They feel they get it. And they feel that Wes would probably get them too. And rather than just write something obsequious and anodyne, which could easily be dismissed as just, oh, it's just another fan letter. They think that Wes is going to sit up and take notice if they lay the truth on him, even if it's unpalatable. Towards the end of the letter, there's a paragraph about the music that Wes has in his films, 
with particular reference to Mark Mothersbaugh, who's collaborated with Wes on a few films, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic. And he started out as a founder member of the band Devo before becoming one of the most sought-after composers in Hollywood. And um, Steely Dan's letter continues... The other change we would have to make would concern Mark Mothersbaugh. Everyone in Hollywood knows that he's a first-class professional musical supervisor. Obviously, you and he have a lot of great history together, and we can imagine there's a certain rapport, both professional and personal. But we certainly can't work with him any more than he would consent to work with us. Same thing for the mandolins and 12-string stuff, and the harpsichord. They're out. You yourself may be partial to those particular instruments, we're not. Remember, we saw Tom Jones in its original theatrical release when we were still in high school. We had to listen to Walk Away Renee all through college, and we fucking opened for Roger McGuinn in the 70s, so all that jingle-jangle morning shit is no big thrill for us, okay? Look, Mark is probably a swell guy, but you, Wes Anderson, must remember that Mark and his music are part of the old way of doing things, the old way of being, the old way that has brought you to the precipice. Mr. Anderson, you must be fearless in defense of your creations and your genius, absolutely fearless, and not give in to sentimental considerations. Blah, 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 blah. We remain your abject servants, W. Becker and D. Fagan, a.k.a. Steely Dan. So clearly there's no question that they're big fans of Wes Anderson. The question is, as creative people themselves, what do they think the point of writing that kind of letter to someone they don't even know is? And yes, presumably on some level they must have thought that he would find it funny and reach out to them and maybe they would collaborate. But it's a weird way of going about it. What kind of artist would he be anyway if he buckled so easily under pressure and got rattled by that letter and said, oh, okay, will you fix my problems then, Steely Dan? I think I would have less respect for him then. I don't know. Rosie has located Donald Fagan hiding in the woods and she's gone after him to uh, teach him a lesson. Anyway, as I say, worth reading the letter. It's quite interesting. And I did find an interview with Wes Anderson from a few years ago where the journalist asked him about the letter. And Wes didn't say much, which was kind of the reason I didn't bring it up again when we uh, met in Paris, because I thought he would just clam up. He, He said that he'd seen it. He was a bit mystified by it. He didn't respond because he felt that it didn't really need a response, that, you know, they they clearly were amusing themselves. And it must be pretty weird to be Wes Anderson, I would think, to have those kinds of very obsessive fans whose appreciation for his work often spills over into real anger and indignation when he lets them down. Fans, eh? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, crazy lot, aren't they? Now, where is my beautiful dog dog? Because it's starting to rain now. Rosie! Oh, there she is. <laughs> but listen, that's quite enough. This has been a very long podcast. Congratulations for making it through to the end. 
Uh, thank you very much indeed once again to Wes Anderson. Thanks to Garth Jennings for his time and hospitality and friendship as ever. Thanks to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his invaluable production support on this episode. Take very good care, listeners. Back with you next week for another Rambly Convo. Until then, please don't forget, I love you. Bye!